I'm bullish on Apple. I'm really curious to see what they do in terms of the VR headset. But I think they're going to run into similar challenges where this is a cool technology. You can do some fun stuff with it, but you're years away from having a form factor that makes it socially acceptable and pervasive in a way that you need for mass adoption and for it to take off. So really, like these are all bets on like a future that's at least five years away. Hello, welcome back to Floorcast, the MFT podcast. I'd love to say that we've got an incredible array of co-hosts that begin with C today, but there's only one. We were actually meant to have five. Can you believe that? But the last remaining one who didn't cancel is Chris K. Hey, um, I, I just had the window open from last week, so um, I, I'm here by default, it sounds like. What was the saying I, I said maybe 20 episodes again? The best ability is availability? Exactly, yes. Uh, available and punctual. That's um, the floorcast. So, Pat, how are you today? I, I, I'm, I'm really good. I, I don't know if the floorcast is punctual. I, I, well, actually, we do go out every Wednesday, right? That is at a fairly midday eastern time type thing so if you're on the west coast it's your morning coffee if you're on the east coast it's during lunch if you're in europe where i usually reside it's like on your commute back from work so it's kind of a actually in terms of punctuality we're probably up there with the 0.0 like the 99th percentile of podcasts yeah exactly so we've managed to put a podcast out every week for what the past 60 odd weeks. weeks actually last week the two weeks ago we had two Right? Amber Vittoria and Silly Tuna. Now you're just showing off, Pat. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, anyway. I mean, I, don't, I won't mention what we were talking about off air because it got a bit weird. We were talking about kind of punishment for last minute dropouts on the floorcast. And you suggested sending insects to the co host's house. Yes. We're going to send bees to Corwin. Don't tell him. So my, my initial one was like actually removing the C from their name. For example, we were supposed to have Corwin on today, Orwin. We were supposed to have Curtis on today, Ertis. Supposed to have Christine on, Christine. That's a bit harder to say, but if you've got the <laughs> at the back of your throat, maybe it's a, it's a good one. Can't remove the C off my name, I'm always here. Actually, that's, that's not true, is it? In two weeks, I'm going to have to take a one-week vacation where Corwin steps in. Oh, actually, no, that's not true. We're going to do an in-person floorcast. Are we? I, I thought we decided not to because it would be a disaster. It might still be a disaster, but we are still probably going to do one. So Nice. Are we going to invite the listeners, or are we just going to get together in a room somewhere? I think we're just going to get together in a room. I don't think it's going to be live like last year. Um, cool. I, I have heard through the grapevine that the list of attendees for NFT NYC is at least half of what it was last year, um, which I'm not surprised by, by the way. It's a weird conference because it isn't annual. It's like every six to eight months. Like they they need to get on a cadence. It is annual, but they moved this one forward so it doesn't conflict with something else, but also so they have more lead time for the London event later in the year. Interesting. You'd think they'd be sort of focusing on the New York one since like, who's in London um, these days? I don't know. That's a really good point. I think we should probably get into things because... We were like, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to talk about? Bank went bankrupt. Instagram stops NFTs. 
Pokemon are looking for an NFT officer, and then some other interesting stories. But first of all, Silicon Valley Bank go per um, in under 24 hours, SVB had 42 billion dollars in withdrawals from startups and businesses um, of their 150. 150- $140 billion balance sheet. And over the weekend, I wrote Canadian, but it's not Canadian. It's Californian regulators stepped in and kind of took over the bank. And by Sunday, the FDIC had announced that they were going to backstop deposits. I mean, there were severe impacts on entrepreneurs, businesses in kind of tech because a lot of tech startups would bank at SVB. And this is, you know, one of the top 20 big banks in the US. Um, and it also had a big impact on crypto and NFTs. I mean, most namely USDC, one of the more popular stable coins, uh, the circle runs, they had over 3 billion of their kind of cash reserves in SVB. Uh, just for context, they have 12 billion in cash and you know 3.3 billion of that was in um, Silicon Valley Bank. So Chris K, you've been in tech and an entrepreneur for a long time, or I think anyway. What was your initial reaction to seeing this as a, well, now startup founder, right? I mean, so first thing, like if I was in their situation, I would try not to do a press conference saying, hey, everything's okay unless we have a bank run. Because you know what that sort of invites? A bank run. It's certainly troubling to see someone like SVB go down I think it's not surprising, you know, as of Tuesday when we're recording this, the outcome, which is FDIC is guaranteeing all of the deposits. Like, I I think they had to step in and do this. It feels different to like the financial crisis of 08, where, you know, you had rampant deregulation and just recklessness with money. This seems more akin to, okay, well, they they don't have the cash on hand, but they actually have the assets, they have the investment to cover everyone's deposit. So I was going to say they they do, but because of the way interest rates have gone on a balance sheet, a lot of those assets would have to be written off at a loss. So there would be some hole there, right? There'd be some hole between the $140 billion and and, and assets. I wish we had Christine here to uh, to, to kind of explain this because she's far smarter than us. But from my understanding is, if they did liquidate everything, they wouldn't have 140 billion as a whole. There would be a, a, a hole that had to be plugged. Yeah, like the numbers I, I heard was like they, they had sort of over two thirds of the deposits available in liquid capital, and the rest was sort of uncertain whether that's the money is gone or whether it's just it takes a bit longer to make that liquid again. Mm. Unclear. Obviously, like the startup um, ecosystem was going crazy over the weekend. I got a number of emails from like companies that I, I work with or have some relationship with saying, hey, we're with Silicon Valley Bank. Don't send us money. We'll be in touch on Monday as to what that means for us. Ultimately, though, it seems like everyone's going to be okay. I've always been surprised at just how many um, companies sort of flock to Silicon Valley Bank versus more traditional institutions. I think that just has a lot to do with sort of... Um, their investor profiles and really sort of how they cater specifically to the needs of tech companies. Generally, though, not surprised. I know there's been warnings um, around this for a while in terms of their financial practices. I think something came out of the weekend. They hadn't had a head of risk management for six months. 
And wasn't the one before that also a risk manager at Lehman or something like that? Someone uh, deeply involved in the story was also, yes, had a very uh, interesting track record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think we can all be glad that, you know, it hasn't had a bigger impact. I think as of yesterday, I know sort of several of the regional banks were down. Um, I know um, two also sort of failed and their deposits are being underwritten as well. But today things seem to be returning to, let's mm. say, normal with air quotes. On the crypto side, it seems like sort of in any sort of situation like this, around sort of 10, 12% of people um, will sort of panic and just sell everything. And that's pretty much what happened to USDC. That went down to, I think, $88 over the weekend, because obviously some of that was exposed to um, Silicon Valley Bank. I think that's back up to 100 now, right? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. I, I've seen some awful takes about this, by the way, Chris K. I've just seen a tweet retweeted, which was, Silicon Valley's problem is, in large part, that they've stopped fixing the average person's problem. Tech hasn't improved most people's lives in a noteworthy way in over a decade and has made an awful lot of people's much worse. <laughs> I, I mean, I think you're starting to see, like, politics bleed into that. And, you know, oh, yeah, the, those libs, their bank fails, great. People do know that, like, the pandemic that just happened, some of the vaccines that got created, like, how do people think some of those things got created at such pace? It was through either one VC investment or two, like, high technical abilities to, like, create the thing and then manufacture it really quickly. It's, it's just beyond me. Like, a, a lot of the takes I've seen over the last 10 years, do you know how absolutely stupid that is? Like, j just as a take, by the way, like, my partner's a PhD researcher and she used some incredibly technical equipment to do her research on a disease, right? A lot of companies are working to create some of those things, just as a, as a random example, not even starting to think about kind of, you know, neobanks in the UK that have made it a lot easier for people to, to kind of live their daily lives. Like, again, a very Western take, but the amount of tech that has helped kind of poorer countries over the last decade is just like, you can't count on one hand. It's, it's just an absurd take. I, mean, I can kind of understand the take. Like people seem to measure technology at times on just what is that great leap forward? Yeah. Um, you know, you had the iPhone in 2008, 2009. You've had improvements in computing, but really sort of, you know, the phone I have now is the same phone I had 15 years ago. It's just more expensive for some reason. But it's also um, much, much better and you do a lot more of your life on it. Absolutely. But I think because you're spending all your time on it and you're sort of really focused on the device, like are you actually sort of really sort of fundamentally aware of each of the sort of incremental improvements over the years? Are you looking for tech to really come along and give you something new? Maybe we're getting that with AI right now. I'm still waiting for my flying car. But you know, I, I can kind of see why people are just thinking that Silicon Valley is sort of sitting on, on the laurels, especially after, you know, the past five uh, years or so, where you have Cambridge Analytica, you have obviously um, all of the political stuff in the US, you have COVID, and, you know, a lot of that has proven social media is sort of a toxic cesspool. You know, when is tech going to invent something good? But like, true... But social media has also allowed the globe to connect in a way that it never did before. 
Absolutely. It's um, allowed for podcasts like this to happen. No, but it's a huge paradigm shift, right? It's a complete paradigm shift. To say that like, it hasn't helped anyone's life over the last, last 10 years is just ridiculous. Um, can, can I just ask you back, back, on, back on track? I know we, we turned this into a slightly like tech bro political bro type thing accidentally, even though that's definitely neither of our, our kind of vibes. When you saw the impact this had on USDC, obviously like a, a massive, massive part of crypto, also a massive legitimate part of crypto, like the way Circle have approached, I would say Circle and Coinbase are the two big legitimate players in Web3 in the way they uh, speak to regulators, um, in the way they deal with regulators, in the way they are regulated. What was going through your mind when you saw it depeg, and then obviously the kind of flash crash to was it point eight one I think to the dollar? Yeah, so I mean, Circle I thought were very transparent about um, this. Honestly, like they they published a great breakdown of just what is holding up USDC, and like if you bothered to sort of read that, it was obvious that this wasn't going to wipe anything out. It may sort of take a bit off the top if the funds just evaporated. But, you know, it, it isn't sort of the sky is falling and there's a massive crypto crash here. Coinbase, I think, were a bit sort of more vague about it. It's like, okay, we're going to suspend trading for, until next week and then we'll deal with it. Um, but generally, I thought the response from both of those were good. They were transparent. And I think, at least for me, maybe not the folks who sort of went on a selling crazy, but I, I think I was sort of somewhat reassured by this. And then, you know, we, we also saw some NFT projects come out and say, like, uh, one, we've got a lot of money in SVB. So Proof, for example, and I'm sure there were a ton of other NFT projects that did, that just didn't say anything until the time was right. And then obviously a lot of NFT projects also have, like, th their treasuries on chain and, and predominantly in USDC, Chris K. So would have been a, a, a really tough time for a lot of them, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm always sort of curious how um, NFT projects sort of deal with their money, whether it is on-chain, whether they sort of convert it to stablecoin um, or not. I think traditionally, SVB has been one of the institutions who have been really sort of open to catering for crypto, and that's probably why there's a lot of exposure there. Like if I go to sort of Citibank and say, hey, I I've got a crypto business, can I have an account? They're probably going to say no. So I think that's created sort of a unique situation. The same thing was true earlier in the year when Ethereum sort of took a nosedive. Well, last year, I should say, like a lot of projects are now sort of thinking a lot more deeply about what they do with funds, how they're diversifying and how they're protecting themselves against short-term um, events like this. For sure. I would say that 95% of NFT projects keep their treasuries on chain uh, yes i think they leave them in the same wallet they forget about them um and don't take any active management of them if i had to guess you said it not me i would say a lot of the treasuries are in usdc or even maybe scarily some of them in ETH, which i think is, is, is i think dumb. a lot of folks wish their treasuries were in usdc really i just cannot believe that after people's like ico boom happened so many people so sold so many tokens in ETH. A lot of those treasuries thought it was anti-crypto to sell the ETH and then died. They raised 10 million in an ICO and kept it all in ETH. The ETH dropped 97% and they just all died. 
I'm hoping a lot of NFT projects haven't haven't done something similar to that. But I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, it is what it is, right? Um, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And maybe the history that repeats bit is the keeping it in ETH bit. And the rhymes is take out ICO, put in NFTs. None of those rhyme, Pat. None of those rhyme. Next up, uh, Instagram are sunsetting NFTs, Chris K. And me and Colvin were arguing a lot about this in the Floorcast channel in the Floor Slack. I saw a really interesting tweet from Jack Butcher, which was like, this is like the abacus sunsetting the calculator, which I thought was super funny. What was your initial reaction to this? It was a surprise. Um, Instagram, Facebook, they're not sort of Web3 forward apps, but they've, at least Instagram's put a lot of effort into selling NFTs over the past few months. They've done drops with artists. And those drops have done fairly well. They've been small batch, but they've sold out sort of pretty much immediately. So there is some interest there. What I don't see is like folks using the sort of posting features um, to sort of showcase their NFTs, anything like that. But, you know, for a small scale experiment, I wouldn't say it's been going terribly unless um, they had sort of grand ambitions that they failed to make clear. So. I'm surprised that it's such a hard sort of, okay, we're just going to take these out of the product. We're not going to sort of talk about them ever again. I can, I could have seen them deprioritizing it. I could have seen them switching direction, but no, it's just surprising to me. One of the things that was surprising to me is that they did have some successful drops, didn't they, with um, Akutar by Drifter. Do you remember? Do you know that guy, Drifter Shoots? No, no, I have no idea who you're talking about. He's a super famous NFT photographer. And he does the photos with where he's sitting over the edge of like a thousand foot building with his fans out. Okay. Oh, uh, yes. I know the pictures now. The, the floor on the, the where my fans go are like 25 Ethan. It's done like about mm-hmm. 4,000 Ethan in secondary market volumes. Um, not a big deal at all. I, uh, yeah, they, they've done a couple of interesting ones. And I just thought like this felt like the start of something. Obviously, Meta have done a bunch of layoffs recently and. I think it makes sense that maybe some of these go to... Like, when you're a tech company in survival mode, you start cutting everything that isn't making revenue, and I guess this was one of those things. But is this cutting, or is this, like, wholesale sort of backpedaling on it? Like, cutting to me would be, okay, you reassign the team, um, and then you just leave the feature there until, you know, some future date when it either stops working or they decide to sort of remove it whereas at least from what i read like it's going away and it's going away very soon you know the whole thing got me thinking like no one has tried to be the instagram of web3 yet um and that kind of surprises me and there's so much they could be doing for creators like imagine you have a web3 instagram app you sort of take your pictures and they get minted and then you have these assets that you can then start trading and monetizing I think there's some really interesting things that Instagram or someone like Instagram could do. They are controlling the publishing of these assets in addition to having the whole social component that, you know, they, they just left um, on the wayside. And like I think that would make NFTs make a lot more sense in Instagram. Like for me, it never made sense that, okay, I can post my digital collectibles because... I'm sharing photos of things that matter to me with people who I ostensibly care about. Um, I'm not 
posting pictures of like a monkey or a sort of moonbird or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two parts here. For me, I think that Instagram primarily went after artists and creators. I think that makes sense. You go for the people with the biggest followings, they post their photos or their artwork and they say these are going to be NFTs. I never saw it as a place because Instagram's quite personal for most people. I never saw it as like a like you would never post a picture of your kids and then like a picture of a bored ape the next. Like, do you know what I mean? I, I'm sure someone has done uh, that. Yeah, I'm sure someone has. But like Twitter feels like a less personal place from a social media lens than Facebook and Instagram. If that makes sense. It does, but I think it's like different sorts of things you're sharing. And like, sure, you, you can have like the store and sort of sell NFTs on a platform, but you, you, you still need to be thinking about how you sort of fulfill the other side and get people creating, get people sharing and get people engaging in that economy. Maybe I'm sort of missing it, but it just seemed like a big opportunity that sort of they let sort of slip by. I think that they obviously have the distribution mechanism, right? They have the ability to create NFTs and distribute at like a really big scale. I think that a lot of the like plumbing just wasn't there. And I do, I, I do honestly think that this isn't just a, an issue for, you know, Instagram and, and big web two companies. I do also think it's a, an issue for crypto companies with big audiences that are trying to get into NFTs. If you think about, you know, what we talked about with Coinbase, I thought, I, you know, I was writing my newsletter the other day and I saw Kraken's got an NFT platform. Like I never knew that. I've used Kraken a bunch for crypto. And my lens on that has changed to, I don't think any of those platforms are ever going to make much money from NFTs, but maybe they can use them as a funnel for their like primary services that do make them money. Maybe, just maybe, like in the future, let's say five, six years from now, like Instagram and TikTok don't become a place that facilitate the trading or showcasing of NFTs. They become a place that use NFTs as funnels to whatever they're trying to monetize, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I agree with you with sort of Kraken and Coinbase. Like, I think the reason they got into NFTs is more a case that they just don't want to leave potential revenue on the table. And they feel like they need to at least have some entry into that space to sort of keep relevant. Maybe it's a hedge against the future competition. Neither of them seem to have done very well in terms of A, building a good product and B, sort of getting the word out. I think it remains to be seen sort of where a lot of the like Web2 social experiences, social networks go. I I think this is sort of, you know, it's sad news to see that it's going away um, on Meta's platforms. You have TikTok, you have others that just haven't gone there. I'm curious if this sort of whets their appetite to sort of go in and sort of see, well, maybe we can do NFTs right, or maybe it's just another reason they'll stay away from it. Potentially, I mean, like, it is surprising considering... Zuck changed the name of Facebook to Meta. <laughs> if, if, we, if we take a big picture view, that is a very strange thing in itself, is it not? I mean, Zuck is just, he doesn't want what happened with mobile to happen again, because I, I think Facebook was sort of really behind when the mobile revolution hit, and um, they lost a lot of traction there. That's why they had to buy Instagram for 
however many billion dollars it was. Like $4 billion, right? I think. Exactly. Like that, That's why they had to buy WhatsApp and make all these acquisitions. And that's why like right now they're doubling down so much on sort of AR, VR, uh, with uh, the Oculus products, why they're sort of really sort of diving into the AI side of things. I think they just don't want to be caught with their pants down again. I think they're being sort of somewhat successful there, but I think they're maybe still lacking a bit of sort of overall vision and strategy there um, as well. Yeah, I think there is a, a lack of fear vision really there. Like, I don't think they, yeah, as you said, they don't want to get left behind. My feeling is that, like, I think there are two parts to the meta metaverse strategy, right? There's hardware and there's the the kind of software and the actual experiential user on phone, user on laptop type of thing, right? So they are leading the hardware game to an extent, mostly due to acquisitions, right? Yeah, I mean, the hardware, it's good. I think the hardware faces a fundamental a fundamental challenge in that the technology isn't quite there yet. Exactly, right. So, so this goes on to my next point, which is, and I guess we can close the section out on asking this question, are Meta going to last long enough for that technology to improve whilst they are market leaders in the space? Because I think if you look at the way that Google, Apple, even Sony are approaching this, it is part of their innovation and research like arm but it's not a primary part of their business yet. And Meta have maybe pivoted to this becoming a primary part of their business too soon, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I mean, they just announced they were laying off 10,000 people. So who knows whether they'll succeed? They're obviously cutting costs. I think they haven't answered the question of what does success look like? And like, what job am I hiring this headset to fill? Like right now, they've got a sort of semi-interesting games platform. They've tried to sort of build productivity tools, but even their own employees don't want to um, use them. Like I think they're trying to throw everything at the wall, see what happens, while at the same time, they're also deathly afraid of people like Apple coming in and um, really sort of taking the crown at the last minute, let's say, because they found a perfect use case. When it comes to this whole sort of area, like, I don't know. I think Meta are in a good position in terms of they have the users. They have a lot of talent. I think we've both said they don't have that direction. So I think that's a big risk for them. And you look at the others, like, I'm bullish on Apple. Um, I'm really curious to see what they do in terms of the VR headset. But I think they're going to run into similar challenges where... You know, this is a cool technology. You can do some fun stuff with it, but you're years away from having a form factor that makes it socially acceptable and pervasive in a way that you need for mass adoption and for it to take off. So really, like these are all bets on like a future that's at least five years away. Didn't Sony recent release a new Sony VR2? Yeah, so they released um, the PSVR 2, which is like... Aren't people saying it's amazing? I hear mixed things. Like, right. it's you still need a cable. Bloody hell. We're still at that point of this, aren't we? <laughs> exactly. Like One of the big things with Meta is you don't need a cable for the Quest. Apple, it's sort of rumored that you're going to have a battery pack that you put on your belt and you plug in. So uh, that's always weird. 
From a technology perspective, I think Sony seem to be doing the same things as Meta with the Quest Pro. So they're doing um, foveated rendering, so it only draws in high resolution the pixels that you're looking at. And they're doing retinal tracking to sort of see exactly where you're looking. I think they're also doing the face detection or face sort of tracking as well, so like your VR avatar can smile and everything. I think like the difference between PSVR and Quest Pro is you have the power of a PlayStation that can drive these experiences. So if you're building a game, you have a much bigger budget for graphics and cool stuff that you don't necessarily have or you just need to be more careful with if you're developing for one of these standalone devices. But apart from that, I don't think there's any like major differences in terms of, oh, well, Sony has this, which sort of totally obsoletes everything Facebook is doing. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you in, in being quite bullish on, um, on Apple. Like, I'm really curious to see what they do. And I think that Apple are the best at creating hardware, right? <laughs> best at creating hardware and best at creating software that works with the hardware. Yeah. And I, I have no doubt when I put one of these Reality Pro things on my head, it'll work seamlessly with my watch, my phone, and my Mac, which is a, a sort of interesting value add versus all of the others where you're sort of physically cut off from them. Like Facebook does a few things like virtual desktops. It's not perfect. You have latency. You don't see your keyboard very well. Like Apple is totally going to sort of win that side of things. But whether they provide a compelling use case that gets the person who thinks that people look stupid with headsets on using it, who knows? Let's see. Let's see. Um, before we move on, I need to remind you that we're a community-led podcast by the Floor NFT app community. If you don't know what Floor is, it's your very own NFT portfolio in your pocket. An app that aggregates all your NFTs into one amazing interface, showing you price movements, latest sales, and so much more. Chris K, we can't say what the latest is on Floor, but there was a really cool Coinbase announcement last week. Yeah, so Coinbase um, dropped an API that lets you create and spin up wallets. It's aimed at some Web2 companies who want to onboard folks into crypto. So as of last week, I believe Floor is integrated, which is really exciting. Like I think, you know, when you sort of look at Floor, it's like often sort of one of the first apps people use to sort of interact with Web3. This just makes it a lot more compelling. And I think from what I hear, they've got another town hall today, if you're listening to this um, hot off the press. So who knows what wonders will be announced? Who knows what wonders will be announced? Let's move on to our next and final topic, which is something that I've been looking at a little bit recently, Chris Kay. And I have had a chat with a friend of mine who's, who's really hot on this stuff and, and really keeps abreast with all things kind of crypto, social tokens, communities. And apparently a bunch of these social token communities have been thinking about transitioning from a tokenized model to an NFT pass model. So FWB passed a... Are you an FWB holder, Chris K? No, I'm not cool enough. Okay, um, got it. No, thought, no one's have responded to my request to join. Yeah, I thought they would have rejected your wallet as you, mm-hmm. as you connected to Uniswap. Just like they've marked that specific wallet. Um, they've been trying to balance... A, a way to have an NFT pass model and move away slightly from their tokens. I think from some of the DAO proposals I've seen, 
and they've got their own app in beta. And then Seed Club, who are an incubator of like other social token communities, they raised about $15 million uh, last year. I think they've also raised some more money recently through some partners in some, some, some sort of way. And they are also trying to look at how NFTs can work within their community. And a few of their tokenized communities have also started launching NFTs to, I presume, make more money and find a way to increase cash flow. But I, I do think it's a really interesting issue that a lot of these tokenized communities have. have. And also, just on the, the, the NFT pass model, Premint, for example, the passes you have currently, the utility for some of them expire or some things with them expire at 2024 when they release another pass. So I'm really curious to see, Chris K, how this landscape goes from like social token communities pivoting to NFTs and then some of these NFT pass communities, how they pivot from like basically an NFT pass to having a yearly subscription model and what that means for like, you know, digital assets and NFTs themselves. You hit the nail on the head. Like the reason most folks are looking at this is because they want that recurring revenue. I think there's lots of ways you can go about it. And like even just lots of ways that you can sort of do NFT passes. Like I think the biggest challenges right now are more sort of technical in terms of, well, you don't really have the rails to do recurring subscriptions and keep people engaged. Like if I subscribe to Netflix, I'm paying for that until I either die or remember to go and cancel it. Um, they're just taking the money out every uh, week and I'm getting uh, my delicious content. And that's great. You know, there's some things coming down the pipe with sort of account abstraction and sort of other methods that you can maybe use crypto for recurring payments. But like, they're still a, a bit far away from prime time. I think it's sort of a really interesting way to approach it. I think for FWB, it definitely makes sense because, you know, look at how it works right now. They have sort of obviously liquidity in their tokens, but they have less control, I think, over the sort of ultimate value of those tokens. Um, when I sort of first looked at FWB, it was what, like $50, um, for one. Um, so like you're looking at the membership fee of like 7,000 bucks. Now it's closer to like 500. And that's not just because ETH is sort of tanked, um, but like the value of that sort of underlying token has also sort of taken such a big hit. Premint, they've always been a bit weird because they've sort of kind of embraced Web3, but not really. Once you activate your pass, it's burnt. You can't really sort of trade it or anything like that. So that's like one way that you can do these memberships. I think it's maybe sort of at odds with sort of the ethos of sort of permissionless sort of marketplaces. This is what I mean. Like everyone is doing their own little twist on this, which isn't sort of good for the consumer, but I can see why they're sort of experimenting with this and trying to figure out how to just keep the revenue going. I think you're going to get pushback in some ways when you have projects that sort of go to this model. It's like, wait, didn't I just pay for my membership and I'm done? Why do I need to sort of have a pass each year? I, I think that's just going to have to change in the market because, you know, as a business who is issuing tokens, as a business that's issuing NFTs, you need that sustainable revenue. Yeah, I think that most NFT communities have a cash flow issue. And I think that from a tokenized 
community perspective, like tokens are liquid as fuck. And that's a really good thing until it's not. You know, if you're a treasury backstopping or providing some of the liquidity for these tokens, like that dries up the lower the price gets. And, you know, obviously some of these don't need to provide that liquidity because there's, you know, there's the, the kind of demand and supply thing. But there are very many communities that are smaller that have tokenized and, you know, this isn't something you walk up to to Kraken and like start trading or buying. It's something that like you need to provide liquidity in a liquidity pool for as a community to kind of incentivize that supply and demand. And once that starts dissipating, those tokens can become very valueless and very useless very quickly. And I'm really curious to see how this works. I mean, I had a, I'd call it a Twitter exchange, but it wasn't so much so. It was um, Duncan Cockfoster, who's the co-founder of Nifty Gateway, tweeted, Reflecting on my time in crypto, it's utterly remarkable how many times a team has gotten some momentum, launched a token to cash out, and then faded into the background without creating something meaningful long-term. How can we fix this huge long-term disincentive? And I just said, tokens are a blessing and a curse that often topple over due to poor incentivization mechanics. And he responded with, yes, once you've sold your tokens for millions, what is the incentive to keep building? Startup founders need to go public to cash out and so they generally have a long t- longer term perspective so i mean w- where do you see the kind of uh solution for this line chris k so i like that analogy like you know if you're starting a startup you are building something you you know what you're building and you're looking at the long term like you're right like a lot of these nft communities have raised a bit of money they don't quite know what to do um and you know they're looking for just more liquidity i actually do like the idea of sort of nft passes and i i've seen sort of examples where um companies will use them in lieu of like what it would what a traditional web 2 membership would be i think that works like as long as you need to keep sort of showing up and sort of producing something so that people see they're getting value, you know, I think that sort of helps align incentives. I'm not going to renew my NFT pass when it expires if I get no value out of it. So I think that's sort of a a good shift to sort of start thinking about um, in the context of a project. It's not just you mint out, you get a bit of money, and then you squander it away. It's you, you need to be delivering in a realistic trot to actually keep your community and have them sort of um, express their approval with their wallets. The thing that interests me about some of these big, big issues and problems is they can also be viewed as big opportunities. Like the people that solve for utility NFT passes slash functional NFTs slash tokens in a community, I think are going to do really, really well. I just don't have a semblance of an idea of how some of those things get solved short term. No, and especially when we get to tokens, like it always sort of devolves into some sort of loyalty based system. You know, oh, you like our tweet, get a token. Um, you look at sort of some of the Web3 gaming stuff, it's like you nap and sort of have a good night's sleep, you get a token. It's like, what? Like, I see where they're coming from in terms of they want to reward certain behaviors. I just don't think that translates into value for the end user or the project, ultimately. Yeah, 100%. I think there's one of the things that I've been speaking to recently about people who are kind of like frustrated by some of their holdings is 
I just don't know how this is going to become more valuable, <laughs> which I think is um, is is a big issue. And I think a lot of the the reasons that we've seen some resurgence in volumes is is mainly due to art rather than membership type NFT communities or, or collectibles and so on and so forth. Anyway, got a couple of things we need to cover before we move on. More stories, wider Web3 stuff, banter and any other business. A couple of um, NFT things to note. Uh, Pokemon are apparently looking for like a metaverse and NFT expert wrapped into some sort of biz development role. Did you see that, Chris K? I did. I saw a lot of people sort of freaking out about it on Twitter because they think NFTs are going to ruin their favorite game. <laughs> you know, with all of these things, this doesn't surprise me. Like if you are a brand with IP, um, you're probably a, a bit stupid and short-sighted if you're not at least thinking about how the metaverse and Web3 can sort of play into that. Oh, 100%. Whether it turns into a product, who knows? But yeah. at least sort of uh, figure out if it makes sense for you. Can I just uh, read you a little excerpt that was from uh, videogames.si.com? And it was that the, the title of the article was Pokemon NFT Job Listing or something along those lines. And the last bit of it was, NFTs are a kind of digital token that are stored on a blockchain, which is web technology that stores a record of transactions across a number of devices. While beneficial in certain sectors, these technologies have been frowned upon in the gaming community for their lack of consumer benefit and their great impact on the environment. NFT games are also heavily associated with scam attempts, such as the recent row around influencer Logan Paul's NFT game. So whoever wrote the article was just kind of like, uh, NFTs are shit because they don't do anything for gamers. Two, they're bad for the environment. Not true. Three, Logan Paul, which I thought was really funny. I I see where they're coming from, honestly. Do you, you know, really, I think though? Like, especially on those, the secondary and the tertiary bit. Like, if Pokemon are going to start an NFT game, let's say hypothetically, what does Logan Paul have anything to do with it? And the environment doesn't have anything to do with it either. So, I mean, the environment was a big issue. Sure. Midway through last year, you know, a lot of people still have that on their talking points. I think the bigger one is just, yeah, NFTs haven't really proved the value in gaming. You have a community of hardcore fans who have maybe been a bit sort of disheartened by the rise of loot boxes, in-app purchases and other monetization that are seeing NFTs as another way to do that. And like all of the promises around sort of interoperability of assets and in-game items and tradability, like I don't think any of those have really sort of um, been realized, at least not um, in any sort of mainstream uh, game. Like you have Shadow Quest um, yeah, and yeah, stuff oh, like I that. So I, to I totally agree. Like, that is the key example of an NFT, NFT game, yeah, Shadow I, Quest. Yeah, I <laughs> I totally agree. Um, th there are few examples. I keep thinking there is something around the corner from an NFT game, but I, I suppose Illuvium, Treeverse, there are a couple of big ones there. I mean, Symbiogenesis, again, uh, doing some of their allow list yesterday or today. So I think between now and the summer, we're going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to NFT gaming and how successful they actually are. Maybe I, I'm more interested in sort of what the big players are doing. So the Square Enix stuff yeah. is interesting. I think, didn't Sony just hire someone to do a similar role at PlayStation? I don't know. 
whatever the platform vendors um, are sort of cooking up, I think that's where you have the potential to sort of really set the tone, you know, drive what NFTs and gaming ultimately end up being. And, you know, I think it's Sony, I think it's Microsoft. Those are the key people who are sort of controlling that. Because if Sony come down and say, okay, we're going to have an NFT marketplace. This is how we see it works. This is how users will interact with it. This is how you should be thinking about it in the context of your games. I think developers will come on board. It's just like Apple. They tell you how to sort of design a good user interface and you get a lot of good user interfaces. You need that sort of prescription to sort of really, I think, guide what developers should be doing in a thoughtful way. Also had the uh, Yuga Labs, D-Gods, and on-chain monkeys doing Bitcoin inscriptions. So let's see how long that kind of trend lasts. And then the Blur announcing mobile capabilities, which was also interesting. We did have a question. I don't know if you had any comments on those before we move on, Chris K, but we do have a question from Moonfuel from the Discord, which I think would, would love your take on. Yeah, I, I'm confused why he didn't just uh, get me on Farcaster. I'm like exclusively using it to talk to him these days. Are, are you actually? He is literally the only person who DMs me on that. So, okay, his question is, Creeps have migrated to a new contract that enforces royalties. Should more established Web3 brands do this? Or should we revert to the positive action defaults that Silly Tuna referenced the pod before last? Um, I haven't actually listened to the Silly Tuna one yet. I listened to Amber Vittoria. That was a very good interview, Pet. Um, but I, I don't know what the last bit refers to. So Creeps, I did a bit of a deep dive in there. So they recently upgraded to a new contract, and that seems to sort of enable a few different things. So they've added a soft staking mechanic, which from what I can tell is essentially just like nesting with your moonbirds. So you're staking your NFT, but it stays in your wallet. They've added support for cross-chain NFTs. Um, and I think a few other sort of game mechanics they have underway. But then additionally, with the new contract, it uses the OpenSea royalty enforcement um, code. So you can only trade it on marketplaces that have creator royalties turned on. You know, th that's great. Uh, they can continue making secondary money. In terms of sort of how you go about doing it, you need to go to a website, you need to essentially trade in your old creep for your new creep and sort of do a transaction. So it's not a sort of seamless process. Your creep won't be auto-upgraded, auto-migrated. The user needs to do that specifically. And I think, you know, if I was sort of advising a project, that would be the main thing I'd be sort of saying to them. It's like, you know, oh, you're not getting royalties anymore? Well, if you do a new contract, you could do that and you could do a load of other stuff. The downside is it's a bit of an effort getting your community along unless your existing contract allows you some means of um, transparently upgrading everything. I think that is sort of the big question on my mind is like, is it worth the effort of a new contract, of all the messaging, of all the handholding of your existing holders, as well as communicating with the marketplace and saying, hey, you know, I'm changing my contract, use this one over here now. And I'm not convinced for a lot of projects it's worth it unless, you know, that wholly dependent on that royalty income and um, it's sort of hurting them so bad. I think what we will see um, going forward is maybe we'll see more projects using upgradable contracts. Mm. So as the royalty uh, landscape changes every week, 
you can just push a new contract and take care of it. I think there the question is, do you get tensions with the Web3 Maxis who are now like, wait, this immutable asset isn't as immutable as I just thought. What does that mean for the concept of ownership around these things? But at the same time, you have sort of a bit of a line, I think, right now anyway, between your PFP projects and then the stuff that you are buying because it's art. So I think both can coexist. And I think, you know, you depending on the project that you're sort of talking about, that really influences how you should think about that. So can I ask a really dumb question? Uh, yes. In, in the announcement, Creeps talked about um, working with OpenSea and other providers on this. Like now you buy a Creeps off me, it automatically has royalties no matter what like you have from a selection perspective. Or is that only if you buy them within like a specific marketplace? No, so my understanding is your OG creeps, that's not changing. Whatever you have in your wallet from that project, it's there. They're not making royalties off it unless you're explicitly paying it when you buy one. They may have um, got some sort of deal with OpenSea, with Blur and some of the others to say, okay, let's restrict trading on this contract because we really want to push all of our users to upgrade. But I think the user needs to do the sort of upgrading or sort of swapping of the tokens in order to get on that contract where royalties are enforced. And I think until you do that, they're not making any money off the sales. Okay, awesome. That was great. Thank you so much for that, Chris. Um, I think we need to wrap up now, though. So uh, why don't you let people know where they can find you? Not on Fastcaster, please. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at, at Seekerhonan, or you can find out about what I do at madewithmason.com. Fantastic. You can find me on Twitter at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. And you can find The Floorcast on Twitter at The Floorcast. And you can find Floor on Twitter at Floor. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We'll have more Floorcast for you next week. Please check out the interviews that we did with Amber, Vittoria, and Silly Tuna, respectively. They were really awesome. You can find them uh, as episode 59 and 60, respectively, released a couple of weeks ago. And uh, please give us a review on Spotify or Apple. And just remember that none of what we have said is financial advice, just great advice.